warnings, which is really the, the nub of the issue. She said, we give people days of alert that their general region may be threatened, but people are pretty savvy about this. So they know that even if a region in general is at risk, it doesn't necessarily mean there'll be a tornado that hits their house. So people wait until things get quite close before they make that call. For tornadoes, they typically wait until they're under a warning and then there are just a couple of minutes of warning. Then all they can really do is shelter in place. She says, people are doing what we call confirming the threat, right? And if I could rephrase it, I would say that our tendency is to disbelieve the urgency of the warning and instead look for signs. That's the backdrop, I think, that kind of thinking for what Jesus is going to say to us in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 13 today. We're nearing the end of the gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 13 today, all of it, and it takes place midweek of Jesus' last week on earth. He's about three days out from the cross, and in chapter 13, we find here the largest block of teaching in the entirety of the gospel of Mark and it's focused on warning us about being deceived concerning Jesus' return. Okay. Um, when you look at how close he is to the cross, how large this teaching is, uh, you get a sense this topic really matters to Jesus and that it really should matter to us. And so the passage today is really long, so you need to know uh, I'm going to be a little bit long today, so just chill with that. Um, pretend like it's the old days when we used to always get to be long. Um, but I, I wanted you to have a chance to hear the passage in its entirety. I, I won't have time to teach all the way through it today, but I wanted you to hear it in its entirety, and to do that, I'm going to let you listen to um, Rosie. She's from Great Britain, and she's uh, a voice on the Dwell app, which our church has made available to you at no cost. It's, uh, there's a link in yesterday's email to the church. Uh, normally, it's $30 a year, I believe. You can pick it up for no cost, and it's the best Bible reading app I've found. So as we get ready to listen to Rosie read the entire chapter to us, uh, let me pray for us to receive it well, and, and we'll go from there. Lord, have mercy upon us now and open our ears to hear what you're saying to the church through your word. This is difficult teaching. Help us to hear what matters most and not to get lost in the details of it. May our hearts be open to the work of your spirit in each of our lives. So now, Lord, we sit under your word as we hear it read together.
And that's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So um, in this chapter, Jesus is greatly concerned for his disciples. The main focus of his teaching is, is not so much instructing about his coming as it is warning us about false teaching that surrounds his coming. Um, and as a result of that, that focus, there are things that he warns us against and there are things he warns us towards and we'll look at each of those. But first, let me give you a framework that's been helpful for me to try to sort all this out because as you've seen, it's pretty difficult to sort all, all of this out. So think of it this way. Back in 2012, I had the chance to visit some North Wakers who were living in China. And they were living in the center of the country in one of China's largest cities in that area, a city named Chongqing. And Jason and Cassie were living there. It's a, it is a truly great city. Uh, by some counts, almost 30 million people live in, in that city. And while we were there, Jason and Cassie took us to a scale model of the city. It was massive. You can see it on the picture. It fills a room like a, the size of a gymnasium. And you stand on a uh, platform above it and uh, you can look out on the city, as it were, in this elaborate scale model that they built. And as we're standing there, sometimes it was clear Jason was pointing things out on the model. And sometimes it was clear, for instance, if he would turn around and point away from the model and say, oh, now over there is such and such, it was clear he was pointing at the actual real city. And sometimes it wasn't clear. He seemed to be doing a little bit of both. And I think we have a similar situation going on in chapter 13 of Mark. Jesus is talking at times about an event uh, that is near to the time that he's living in. Think of it like the model. And then there are times when he looks beyond that model into the end of time. Think of that as the ultimate reality. Let me show you what I mean. So in chapter 13, starting in verse 1, as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings, talking about the temple. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So at one level, Jesus is going to answer their literal question about the destruction of the temple that he just predicted. And see, the temple was massive. Um, in its grounds, you could fit 12 football fields. At one point on, a, on the sloping side of the temple, it was 15 stories high. They've unearthed stones in the foundation that weigh a million pounds. It was the symbolic center of Jewish life. Commerce, spirituality, government, it all lived, embodied in the temple. And when Jesus turns his back on it, predicts its destruction, 
It'd be like somebody uh, turning their back on the mall in D.C. and predicting the flattening of the White House, the Capitol building, the National Cathedral, and the Treasury building all at once. And no one could fathom this. The destruction of the temple in their mind was linked with the end of the world. One of the things Jesus is going to teach them is to say, it's not. Okay? It's, it's not. Because this prediction of his actually came to pass in the year 70 AD, about 40 years after this teaching. Um, a historian named Josephus described it. He said, Caesar ordered the whole city of Jerusalem and the temple to be razed to the ground. He says, the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors on the spot no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. It happened. Forty years after Jesus predicted it, this temple was literally physically destroyed. So that's the near thing Jesus is talking about here. But if you read farther down, it seems like Jesus is talking more about the end of the world and his return than the end of the temple. Look at verse 24. In, the, in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, to me that sounds like something ultimate, something more than the literal destruction of that temple in Jerusalem. And so, again, what I think Jesus is doing here is he's talking about a near event and also talking about a far event. And sometimes the near one foreshadows the far one. He's doing what Jason did for me in China with that model city, right? Um, now, one of the commentators that I'm reading a lot is, writes for something called the Pillar Commentary. It's a wonderful set of commentaries. His name is uh, Professor James Edwards. It's probably one of the most helpful commentaries I've found in Mark. And he helped me think about when Jesus is talking about something near and when he's talking about something far in this passage. And I'll follow largely his guidance on this matter. It helped me. So the first 13 verses, when Jesus is immediately responding to the disciples' question, it's primarily about the actual destruction of the first century temple. It has remarkable correspondence in history there. But then, in verses 14 to 27, when he's talking about things like the abomination of desolation, he looks not only at the temple, but on into the future and sees things that are about to happen at the end when he does return. And then, just to keep us on our toes, in verses 28 to 31, when he talks about the fig tree, he uses language that connects primarily with that temple in the first century again. And then in the end, when he goes back and says, no one knows the time, again, he's primarily switched back to talking about the end of time and there are reasons for outlining it that way. But let me just say a couple of things. First of all, this is really, really difficult. My favorite Bible scholars, uh, including my elders, disagree with each other at points about this. Um, the applications we'll see become very clear. But sorting out what Jesus is looking at at what time is very challenging. But it can be very, very helpful. For instance, one of the troubles in this is verse 30, when Jesus says, truly I say to you, 
This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, if he's talking there about that temple that's going to be destroyed in 40 years, then that statement makes perfect sense. But if he's talking about Christ's return 2,000 years and counting later, it becomes much more difficult to make sense out of that statement, though, though it, it can be embraced in other ways. So, it's extremely complicated, but I think it helps us understand what Jesus is talking about. Um, let me say at this point in time, beware of Bible teachers who have it all worked out down to the smallest detail with great confidence. And they have, they're confident they're right and others are wrong. Um, the difficulty of this text demands a great humility from those of us who teach this text and others like it. When we press into details, especially when we think about timing, oh, this is, this is so difficult to sort out. John Piper says it well. He says, when our future perspective becomes chronological instead of theological, then faith is endangered. The more detailed one attempts to map out the future, the more inferences one must make which are not explicit in the scripture. Therefore, the tendency of the imagination to fill the gaps increases and the probability of erroneous calculation grows. So I hope my humble attempt to give you a framework to think about this helps you make sense out of the passage. Especially as you listen for Jesus' warnings. That's primarily what this is about. He's warning us so that we will truly be ready for his return and not agitated and in error. So first, let's look at what Jesus is warning us against. In verses 5 through 8, we begin to pick up on it. Jesus responds to their question about the temple. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. But these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Okay. Drop down to verse 12. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you'll be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus starts all this off by saying, don't let anyone lead you astray. So his great concern is about false teachers. He says there are going to be false teachers. There are going to be great troubles that lead to great suffering for God's people. There are going to be false claims about his return. Um, there are going to be wars and earthquakes and famines and persecutions, even amongst their family. Um, but Jesus says, these aren't signs of the end. Okay? They're not uniquely signs of the end. Um, they are signs both near and far and everywhere in between. Look at what he says in verses 7 and 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. Okay. Essentially saying, these are not unique signs of the end. He says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines. These are, but these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. 
So climate change, pandemics, and blood moons, and whoever gets elected to office are not signs of the end. They've happened throughout history, and they're going to continue to happen throughout history, Jesus is saying, until right up until the end. The same thing he says about suffering and persecution of believers. Sufferings in and of themselves are not uniquely signs of the end. They are marks of Jesus' followers throughout all time. Way back in the first century, the Apostle Paul, he would just say, indeed, all who desire to live Godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Jesus is warning us here from becoming focused on seeking signs that may not even really be signs of his return. And Professor David Garland writes about the true signs of the end. He says they come so fast that they'll provide no warning at all. So Jesus does not want us seeking signs primarily. That's not the primary indicator of readiness for his return. He also warns us about trying to figure out the calendar, date setting. Look at verse, the way he closes our passage. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So, Jesus is being very, very clear here. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. And just to make sure he knows, wants us to know there's no exceptions to that, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So even Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back at this point in time. And I know that messes with our categories, right? Because Jesus is God, and God is omniscient, and Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back. So apparently, in becoming human, Jesus was willing to take on limitations um, that caused him not to exercise his knowledge of all things here, right? If the angels don't know, and the very Son of God doesn't know, then likely best-selling authors and bloggers and YouTube preachers don't know either, okay? Essentially, Jesus is saying here, it cannot be known. It's not knowable. Now, why is Jesus concerned for us as his followers about sign-seeking and date-setting? They, they sound like nice hobbies. Why is he concerned about those things? Well, think about it this way. Um, in January of 2018, this alert went out uh, to the people of Hawaii. Emergency alert, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. This went out from the authorities 
from the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency to millions of people on their phones, on their TV screens across Hawaii. It turns out it was the result of a mistake by an employee of, the, of that agency who selected the wrong option in a text-based drop-down menu. Okay. So a false alarm went out to everyone in Hawaii. So let me ask you though, what happens if another false alarm goes out? And then another false alarm goes out. How do you think that affects the readiness of the people in Hawaii for an actual nuclear attack. Um, it becomes a kind of boy who cried wolf scenario, right? No one is actually ready when the wolf or the attack or the Christ really comes. False prophets raise false hopes and then dash them. And A word about Bible teachers whom you choose to sit under regarding this kind of teaching, which is extraordinarily difficult, but honestly, any kind of doctrinal or Bible teaching. The New Testament puts a premium on your ability to know the character of your teachers. It's the primary qualification to be an elder in Christ's church, your character. Um, you should know the life and reputation of those you entrust with teaching you about Jesus and his way. Okay. Um, so be careful about online teachers whose reputation you do not know, whose accountability you don't know. Are they accountable to a local church and a group of elders who oversee their ministry? Um, do they have a truly independent board? Or is it all family members? Um, do you know the breadth and validity of their teaching on other matters? Do you know what their training is? Do you know their reputation amongst teachers you do trust and do know their character? See, Northwake is blessed off the charts by amazing people who not only teach the Bible, there are people here who make their living training people to teach the Bible. Um, most of them have the little uh, prefix doctor attached to their name. So if you want to know something about the Old Testament, Dr. McDaniel and Dr. Lassiter, there's nobody better. These guys are experts who've given their life to that. Um, Ranjur Locke, who's almost a doctor, um, he knows the book of Amos better than he knows his wife. Okay, he's getting his doctorate in the book of Amos. Dr. Merkel's our New Testament guy. Uh, Dr. Lederbach about ethics. Dr. Williams is good for something, I'm sure. <laughs> he's, he's a helpful guy in something. Um, Dr. Robinson, Dr. Inman, um, and there's probably others I've overlooked. Hey, uh, Dr. Miles. Uh, these men and women are gifts to our church. You don't have to go this alone and go poking around on YouTube to find a Bible teacher. And that doesn't even mention our pastors who are experienced, trained, disciplined teachers of the word and the people who are teaching uh, what would normally be our life change classes, those James studies, our men and women's studies that are going on right now, pretty amazing Bible teachers. Email one of them 
If you have an area of interest and say, what would you recommend? Who's a good teacher on this subject? And they can refer you. Some of our teachers refer you to their own books they've written. We have authors who've written on these subjects. Um, but there are others that they've used and vetted in their studies who, you, who they know these men and women or they know of their ministries. Jesus is greatly concerned about false teachers who wrongly teach about his coming, signs surrounding it, and are obsessed with dates. Um, the things he warns us towards are jeopardized by this kind of distracting false teaching. Um, Professor uh, James Edwards, who wrote that commentary I alluded to, says, no one is either encouraged or commended for attempting to be an eschatological code cracker. That is folly, for even the Son of Man is ignorant of the end. The premium of discipleship is placed not on predicting the future, but on faithfulness in the present, especially in trials, adversity, and suffering. And those are the things Jesus warns us towards. Let's, let's look at them. The first thing Jesus is concerned about us moving towards as we think about his coming is his own teaching. It's absolutely essential that we, we know Jesus teaching well. Uh, look at what he says in a couple of verses in Mark 13. Be on your guard, verse 23. I have told you all things beforehand. In verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And Jesus points us to the surety and the sufficiency of his teaching. Narrowly, I think he has in mind here um, the teaching he's giving the disciples in Mark 13. But more broadly, Jesus is telling you to read your Bibles, okay? Read them every day. And you develop discernment about what is true and what is not. Okay. Tim Challies is a, a blogger and he, he went into, he's a Canadian, he went to the Bank of Canada and did an experiment. He met with their, uh, the Bank of Canada's, uh, Canada's currency expert and asked her to teach him how they train tellers to find counterfeit bills. Now they, they look at some counterfeits for sure, but um, they they primarily look at what is true. He said, uh, training in identifying counterfeit currency begins with studying genuine money. The bank's currency experts summarize the approach to distinguishing a genuine bill with the phrase, touch, tilt, look at, and look through. It's different ways you could handle the bill so you could see what was unique and true about it. And he says the first step then is to touch the bill because currency is printed on unique cotton-based paper. A false bill will often feel false. She described the most common reaction to the feel of a counterfeit bill as waxy. A person may not quite be able to describe it. It just feels wrong. Okay. And when you have a great familiarity with Scripture and someone comes up with some new, new way of understanding it, um, okay, New theology is rarely good theology. It's not a good thing to be novel in theology. But when somebody comes with something new and you hear it and you're familiar with the scriptures, you can find yourself thinking, hmm, that just doesn't quite feel right. But you must know the scriptures, right? Jesus warns us toward his own teaching. We simply must know our Bibles to resist this kind of false teaching. 
He also warns us to expect hardship not exclusively as a sign of the end of the world, but as part of discipleship. Um, Look again at chapter 13, and it, it says, be on your guard. They'll deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. If you drop down to verse 12, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father is child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And what precedes that teaching are these words. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Again, um, Jesus is concerned that we would not flee from suffering and hold up in the hills waiting for the end, but that we would faithfully endure suffering unto the end. A beautiful picture of, of what I think Jesus is talking about is a North Carolina pastor. His name is Andrew Brunson. Some of you know his story. He had a ministry in Turkey for about 20 years. And then in 2016, there was a, some turmoil in Turkey. He was arrested as a spy, was jailed without charge for a year, spent two years in prison with lengthy trials um, during that time. And after his release, after the intercession of the United States government, he was released. And he said, he said this, he said, he did not feel God's overwhelming presence during his stay in prison. Instead, he says he experienced something even deeper. He says, after a few days in prison, I completely lost the sense of God's presence. God was silent, and he remained silent for two years. And when he's finally brought to, t- to trial, things got even worse. And he said, I lay there alone in my solitary cell. I had great fear, terrible grief, and I was weeping. And the thought kept going through my mind, where are you, God? Why are you so far away? And I opened my mouth as I wept aloud and I was surprised at what I heard coming out of my mouth. I heard, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I thought, here is my victory. Even if you're silent, I love you. Even if you let my enemy harm me, I love you. As Jesus said, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. His wife made a Facebook post about that time and she said of her husband that he said it is a privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ blessed am I as I suffer for him blessed am I as I am slandered blessed am I as I am lied about blessed am I as I am imprisoned blessed am I as I share his suffering Jesus warns us know my words he warns us expect hardship in the near time and the far time, and all the time in between as you follow me. And then the last thing that I'll highlight that he warns us towards is expect to be surprised, right? When I return, expect to be surprised. And that's that closing section starting in verse 32 where he says concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. You drop down to verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Drop down to verse 35, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. Expect to be surprised, Jesus is telling us. Because there's a sense in which it's the not knowing that keeps us watchful. 
Think about this. Uh, in 2004, there's a bomb scare in Philadelphia. Um, conductor for Pennsylvania's Transit Authority discovered um, something frightening on the tracks near Philly's massive 30th Street station. It was an electronic transmitter planted alongside the tracks in the commuter rail yard. Um, agents from Homeland Security and the FBI swarm the scene. Investigators discover that the mysterious gadget was in fact a motion detector designed to send a signal to a nearby transceiver. Tension is ramping up. A train mechanic finally steps forward and admits he installed the transmitter. And so we're wondering, was, is he a terrorist? Is he a disgruntled employee looking for revenge? No, actually, the mechanic worked the graveyard shift and he installed the motion detector to sound an alarm in his work area whenever his supervisor was approaching. That way he could safely take a nap. And if the alarm went off, he could get up and look busy when the boss showed up. So, right, there's a sense in which in the not knowing when the boss will return that makes us watchful, right? Especially coupled with his promise that he will return. In, in Matthew 24, Jesus says, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus says, stay awake. I say it to you all, stay awake. What is, if it's not primarily about signs, and it's not primarily about dates, what does it mean to, to stay awake? And I would think about it in two categories as I've looked through the teaching of the New Testament on readying for Christ's return. Um, I would think about mindfulness and faithfulness. Being mindful of the return of Christ, keeping it on your radar. The doorkeeper is always ready should the master return. So these kind of questions help. What if this day was that day? What would I want to be found being about? What wouldn't I want to be found being about? Okay. What if this day was that day? And asking that question helps us be mindful that Christ, his return, is at the ready. And being found faithful, Paul would say steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Jesus himself says in Matthew, who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. See, the mark of watchfulness is mindfulness and faithfulness. What if this was that day? What would I want to be found being about? What wouldn't I want to be found being about. How will you keep awake for Jesus' return? Pray with me and we'll close our service. Oh Jesus, help us. We are distracted and forgetful and confused and sometimes even deceived as you warned us against this day. Um, help us, help us understand your teaching and cherish it and believe it and live ready for it to become a reality. Help us, Lord, to be ready for your return. Protect us from distractions and teaching that would stir us up in unhealthy ways. 
Help us to live the gospel each day faithfully that you did die for our sins and have given us grace to be witnesses of before kings and governors and even our neighbors and family. We ask this, Christ, in your name and for your sake. Amen.